You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the Mary and Rankike Van Anda Entrepreneurial Professor of Economics and Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business and the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Labor Economics. Holding a PhD in economics from Princeton University, he studies the economics of organizations and human resource practices. His latest book is titled An Economist Goes to the Game, How to Throw Away 580 Million and Other Surprising Insights from the Economics of Sports. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Paul Oyer. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research. Sure. My name is Paul Oyer. I've been a professor at Stanford for over 20 years now in the business school, and uh, I teach economics, statistics type classes, mostly to MBA students. Um, And in my Uh, I'm a labor economist, so I've been studying the labor market for 30 years now in various ways. I wrote papers about salespeople's compensation system, about uh, Uber drivers, lawyers, all sorts of different labor markets. And um, although I've never done any research on sports, I'm very interested in sports. And uh, there's really a lot of interesting economics and labor economics topics so it really caught my attention, and that's what led to this book. So, yeah, your latest book is titled An Economist Goes to the Game, How to Throw Away $580 million and Other Surprising Insights from the Economics of Sports, um, and professes to be, quote, an engaging look at the ways economic thinking can help us understand how sports work both on and off the field. So it goes over quite a few interesting topics and questions in the world of sports. And I wanted to go through some of the ones that I think are most interesting, starting with the question, should you help your kid become a pro athlete? So when I ask myself that just intuitively, um, my guess would be the answer is that it depends. But it seems like in most cases, the answer should be no. For most people, it seems like making it to the pros is an ultra high risk, ultra high reward proposition with an extremely steep opportunity cost. But I assume for an extremely selected few that there is either a low enough opportunity cost or that they're clearly gifted enough in terms of some attributes that the math works out in favor of pursuing um, the pro athlete track. So, Dr. Oyer, how do you answer this question of should you help your kid become a pro athlete or even push them to play sports as a child at all? Right. So you focused on one way in which training as a child can pay off, and that's if you really hit it big and you end up being... Um, a star athlete and earning the millions of dollars that they do. But I think a lot of people profess there is other economic value to sports, meaning it pays off later in terms of the labor market in some way because you learn discipline and teamwork and things like that. And I don't think, I think as as I understand the literature, I don't think there's a lot of reason to believe that that's true. So you shouldn't be investing in your child's sporting future for those benefits, and at least not unless the kid likes to play sports anyway. So I like to think of sports more as consumption than investment. When you're a child, it's a great way to enjoy your childhood because from an economist's perspective, the most um, 
scarce resource we have is our, our youth, basically. And so you want to use it to invest in your future, but you also want to think about enjoying it. Sports is a great way to enjoy it. And there are there can be a return on investment. But as you put it in your question, I think it's only to a select few that you'd really expect that. Okay, and what does that um, economic value look like? Is there anything that you discovered um, from playing sports as a child? (laughs) Well, I had a good time playing sports as a child, but I can tell you I didn't get anything out of it (laughs) financially. Um, What you do, what you could get out of it is a college scholarship, of course, but that's very that even that is very rare, and the amount of you know money to to develop those attributes that that would make you a great athlete that would make you a pro or even get a college scholarship. It's just probably not a great investment unless you're really enjoying things otherwise. Now, there are exceptions, as you suggested in your question. So what would be those exceptions? Well, if you were 13 years old and you already say six foot eight and incredibly athletic, then your future starts to look really good in basketball or other sports that it, where, it's, where height is a really great predictor. But those examples are few and far between. And I see a lot of parents put a lot of effort into um, and resources into their child's tennis or golf career or something like that. And sure, it's possible that that'll pay off really well. But um, I don't think a rational investor would put their money into their children's uh, sports career. Okay, so the next topic um, I wanted to ask you about from the book is why do athletes cheat and lie? Once again, it seems like a simple risk-reward question to me. If the advantage or upside that they get from cheating, lying, doping, or whatever um, outweighs the risk of getting caught and losing their career, um, it seems to me that that would explain why they do it. So to me, the incentive structure would appear the same as you know a student that knows that they can get away with cheating on a test or lying on their college application. So, Dr. Royer, what were your findings? Um, why do athletes cheat and lie? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I think you've got. I think you're right. It's the incentives are very similar to students cheating in in other situations, other situations where people cheat. Um, the 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 um, the thing about athletes is the stakes are so high. So, why do we see athletes cheat? Mostly, it's about the payoffs are just so much better than they could do in any other thing. So once you've become, once you've become somebody who can be a, for example, major league baseball player, you can earn millions of dollars. And for most of these people, the alternatives are just not in the millions of dollars. So the incentives to cheat there are very strong in the case of, for example, in the case of baseball, steroid use and, and is the most obvious thing. And then, um, you know, cycling is another arena where you just see people where you see massive amounts of cheating. And um, um, again, it's just it's all about the incentives. The upsides are so strong to being just a little bit better and um, in, in in cycling or baseball or, or several other contexts on the lying side. Again, I don't think it's that different than other contexts. It's what I like to what the. What I try to get at, what economists try to get at is what we might call models of cheap talk. And that is understanding why, when an athlete says something, what incentives do they have to tell the truth? And, and being, being skeptical can some, is valuable. I don't mean to always assume the worst in people, but to be, to realize, to think through, well, what would this person say if this weren't the truth? 
that can be very helpful. Okay, so the next topic is um, a bit different and perhaps a bit controversial, which is, are athletes worth all that money? So from a simple economics perspective, um, athletes like you know any other good or service are worth what someone will pay for them. So if his team is willing to pay LeBron $40 million a year, he must be contributing at least that much value to the team, just like any other employee. Now, obviously, that's an oversimplified take, and I'm sure there's much more nuance to it than that. So, Dr. Ryer, tell us a bit about this part of the book and why, if so, are athletes worth all that money? Yeah, that's a great question. From a philosophical point of view, we look at an athlete making $50 million a year or $30 million a year. And it just doesn't feel right. They're playing a game. Now they're working very hard. We all understand that. It's not easy to be a professional athlete. It's it's very taxing. And the amount of work you have to put in is incredible. But still, you're playing a game for a living. So um, why is it possible? Why would we possibly pay somebody $40 million and a school teacher might make you know $100,000 a year if they're lucky? And those people are doing this incredible service for our children. So it seems unfair. Now, the thing is, though, athletes have, from an, as an economist would put it, athletes have scarce a scarce resource, and that is the ability to play these games at the highest possible level. And so, like you said, the market will bear that. Now, we can look at some other areas and see people making fabulous amounts of money. And you might say, well, maybe that isn't fair. So the classic example here is CEOs who make $100 million a year. Well, those people often um, deserve a lot of money as well. But you, you can be somewhat skeptical in those situations that the board of directors or their friends and the stockholders don't have a very good leverage to keep their compensation in place or things like that. Athletes, on the other hand, really they do earn their income now are they actually worth you know is is that a good thing from society's perspective does society have skewed incentives that's a bigger philosophical issue but from a straight up market point of view athletes who are just you know lead to huge tv ratings are creating a lot of value for those people who are watching them and as you said that's what the market will bear now, you know, we may not like that from a, that may not feel great, but they are bringing a great deal of enjoyment to the many people who watch them. Now, in, in an interesting, a lot of people can make, I think you can make the argument, you said LeBron makes $40 million, LeBron Jake makes $40 million and, and, you know, that feels problematic at some level. And I agree with that. But on the other hand, I would actually make the argument that LeBron James is significantly underpaid by the Lakers because of the some of the institutional rules involved in the collective bargaining agreement between the NBA and um, the players union. There's a cap on each individual's pay of 40 or 50 million it changes year to year, but it's in the $40 million per year range. And, and so you have LeBron making 40 million and you have other players also making that cap who are not nearly as good as he is. So when you think about the real value they add to their team and to the NBA, LeBron, Steph Curry, and a few others are actually underpaid, not overpaid. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it seems to me that if if people are willing to come and spend hundreds of dollars to, to, to see LeBron on the court and then spend several hundred more buying his shoes and his merch um, and all sorts of things, um, and, and people, you know, 
millions of people all around the country or even around the world are willing to do this, um, then it, it seems to me very difficult to make the argument that, you know, he's he, he doesn't deserve that that money. Like it, it goes back to sort of a deeper philosophical question of, well, who deserves what and who decides that? I mean, if the people are willing to pay him that much money for the service, I mean, I, I, I go to the barber shop and I, I pay my barber to provide me with a service. He's providing a lot of people with the service and he's getting paid um, with the value that us, the individual consumers, decide his service is worth, right? So, I mean, why? What? What? What would? Uh, that's that's just what I'm trying to get at. Like, is there sort of like a an alternative way to structure these incentives, or is that just the, the same way everything works and has always worked? Well, I think it is the same way. It the same way things have worked, but what's different now is over time, technology has made LeBron and the equivalent uh, superstars more valuable because as for a couple of reasons, at least more than a couple, but at least two, one of which is as, as TVs have gotten better and other means of watching mass sports have gotten better, that's made people. And and as the rest of the world has been able to tune in and watch as well, that's created uh, what economists call a superstar effect. So the very top NBA players and the, the very top end uh, basketball players in the world are worth more than they used to be because the whole world can watch them now. And in, you know, on beautiful LED TVs. Um, whereas in the old days, you know, maybe Bill Russell wasn't quite as valuable as LeBron because you had a 15 inch black and white television and not as many people would tune in and it, and it wasn't available around the world. The second thing that's changed is over time, the, the, What's making athletes more rich and valuable is that in the rest of the world, there are more rich people out there who have ex, you know extra money and can pay for courtside seats and fabulous TVs and, and cable packages that lead to a lot of revenue for, for these things that eventually filter through to the athletes. Okay, so the next topic um, I wanted to talk about is another sort of controversial one, um, specifically the question of how do ticket scalpers make the world a better place? So again, from an economics perspective, ticket scalping never really seemed like a problem to me. However, it seems to enrage a lot of people. Um, Like with the last question, the value of a ticket is decided by a simple supply and demand. And the market and in a market with more buyers than sellers, the price is going to be pushed up to whatever the highest bidder is willing to pay for it. In my mind, the real problem are the original sellers who refuse to sell tickets at the market price, creating this whole um, space for for ticket scalpers to to make money. So, Dr. Ayer, tell us a bit about the world of ticket scalping and, and your findings. Well, yeah, that's a I, I. So we start from the same point that if we see you know free markets to allow tickets to exchange are generally a good thing. And I think, but I think a lot of people don't see it that way because when tickets get very expensive, they blame the ticket scalpers when in fact, it's just that there aren't enough tickets to go around to begin with. So there, there are some problems with ticket scalpers that have gotten worse in the age of bots where they go on and buy the tickets automatically using technology and everybody else is wasting their time trying to get these tickets. But that's more a matter of just how the market is set up than than with how it clears. So as long as ticket scalpers, as just like any other sort of resale, used cars, used anything, 
they provide a service, uh, an exchange that moves goods from those who value them less to those who value them more and, and therefore makes both parties better off. And uh, it's hard to hard to complain about that. So some people have argued that um, with ticket scalping, um, the I mean, one of the things that we could do to sort of curb it is obviously Ticketmaster sort of has a, a chokehold on on this industry um, for for I think the vast majority of um, music events or sport events or that sort of thing. Um, your your only option is to go via Ticketmaster. Um, and so one of the things that, that that a lot of people have been calling on Ticketmaster to do is to um, cap resale um, prices at the same price as the retail price. So, I mean, if you want to purchase a ticket, um, you can't resell that again for profit. You can only resell it for what you paid for it. Um, so again, it would turn the whole system into a first come first serve instead of, um, you know, uh, um, creating a market for ticket scalpers to jump in, um, use bots and make a profit. Um, so do you think that that would be a more, um, you know, either it, 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 I don't think it would be a more efficient solution, but do you think that would be a preferable solution to the one we have now in any way? No, I don't think so. And here's why. I mean, just think of the very simple thought experiment as follows. Suppose I somehow through the Ticketmaster allocation system bought a ticket to a baseball game for $50 and I'm not allowed to resell it. But let's say that there's somebody out there willing to pay $200 for that ticket. And I would just love to have the $200 instead of the ticket. It, it makes no sense to not allow me to resell the ticket for the $200 and make both of us better off. The person who buys the ticket can go to the game and I can have $200 to spend on something else that I might find a lot more valuable. It's hard to see how that could be a bad thing. Okay, but then what about the people um, sort of that do this almost like a, a career? So, I mean, I, I would get it if it was one person who might maybe bought a, uh, a ticket and now they, they want to sell it again because they can't make it or whatever. But what about when you have um, people, um, ticket scalpers or, or massive ticket scalping companies that use bots to snap up thousands of tickets all, all across um, several events and then resell them for several times the price? Um, do you think that, again, the right answer would be to for, for the original um, sports venues or whatever to just sell the ticket at the market price instead of letting the market scalpers buy in. Is that are, are they doing the economy or society disservice by pricing the tickets at artificially low prices? Well, I I think um, I don't really care who gets the money up front. I agree with you that if they just price the tickets appropriately up front, so a lot of these problems go away. But often they don't know what the right price is up front, right? So they leave maybe a little money on the table and the scalpers come in and, and grab some of that. And, you know, it would be better if the bots were, I, I'm not a big fan of the bots because they're obviously wasting a lot of people's times and just grabbing, grabbing the surplus and then reselling it. But having said that, they do... By, by allowing ticket resale, we're at least getting the ticket to the right person in the end. By, and by the right person, I mean somebody who values them highly and will um, and, and somebody else who has, who has come upon these tickets, maybe at below market rates, should always have the option to um, resell them and, and use those use the proceeds from that ticket sale for something that's more valuable to them than going to the game. Okay, um, so the final topic I wanted to ask you about um, is the final question in the book: um, Who wins when people gamble? 
So the obvious answer to me is probably the gambling company, right? Just with the casino, the the house always wins, right? Or is there more to it? <laughs> the house does always win pretty much. Although people will argue that they win, but they're they're usually they're usually either deluding themselves or they're lying to you. Um, the house takes a cut, and it's more than just that, though. So let's take a few different examples. In horse racing, we have what's known as paramutual betting, and there the house does always win overall because um, they basically the odds are set up so that the house takes in a hundred dollars and pays out eighty, maybe eighty dollars. In no matter so no matter who you bet on, the payout is still eighty dollars. The overall payout is still about eighty dollars. The odds differ based on how many people bet on each each horse or whatever um whatever example of paramutual betting you have but then think about sports books so when you go to the casino when you go to a casino in vegas or wherever they now allow sports betting the house will also take a cut in in the sense that if you bet let's say there was a game between the san francisco 49ers and the minnesota vikings the house will um you know take in the, the payoffs will, the odds between the two sides or the line is set such that the house will take a 10% cut um, if, if they set the lines. In any case, they're going to take a minimum of 10% cut. But the house actually goes further than that. They will often take a side. They have better information than you do, and they'll take advantage of misconceptions of fans about different things. So the house will often make even more than their the VIG, what's called the VIG, which is the 10% or, uh, they, they expect to take off the top. And then a, another thing you need to keep in mind is, depending on the sport of football and other other places where the stakes are really high and there's millions of dollars of betting, I'm less worried about this. But in small, thin markets, often people will just out and out cheat. So for reasons I've never been able to figure out, there's a lot of betting on tennis. And in, in, in not just top matches, not just Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, but really rinky-dink matches where people rank 200 or 400 in the world with that will be playing. And in those cases, you can actually just have players where the returns to um, – for that player throwing a match are higher than trying to win the match because the prize money isn't that great. Whereas the potential to uh, make money in the betting market or to get paid off by someone who wants to make money in the betting market are quite high. So basically you, you should only bet if you enjoy betting. It's really, really hard to think of more than just more than, unless you're an incredible expert in sports if it's not your hop, if it's you're not doing it for the fun of it, don't do it. Okay, and I just wanted to go back to the title: um, "How to Throw Away Five Hundred and Eighty Million Dollars." What, what is what is that a reference to? That's a reference to um, the NBA strike, which was which is about ten years ago now. So, if you remember um, early this season, there was a baseball strike that made the season start late. Although I think they're going to continue and have a full season. About 10 years ago, there was an NBA, and, and I'm sorry, I said strike. In both cases, it was a lockout. The players could not reach a collective union, could not reach a collective bargaining agreement with the league in Major League Baseball this year and in the NBA in about uh, the season, I think it was 2011-2012. And as a result, when they don't when they don't come to an agreement, games don't get played and players don't get play, payers don't get paid. 
And basically the league and the players who are partners, because they can't come to an agreement, they end up burning money. They're throwing it away, as I said in the title. My estimate is that the NBA strike cost about $580 million. The the NBA lockout, I'm sorry. The major league lockout this year also cost quite a bit of money, probably a lot less than $580 million because they're going to get the whole season in. But again, the, the, the underlying economics of this are when you have these two groups, which in one case is the players and in the other case is the owners, who have so much at stake and they're as a partnership, but then they fight over the size of that, over who gets what share of the pie. That that is how you destroy value, and in this case, five hundred eighty million dollars. Okay, and finally, I wanted to finish off by asking if there was anything you learned or any trends that you observed in researching or writing this book that were especially surprising that you didn't expect. I think one thing that. Um, surprised surprised me, or I found the most illuminating and interesting is um, the economic concept of uh, natural advantage and other forms of comparative advantage that lead some countries and groups to just be dominant in certain sports. In the book, I particularly focus on the women golfers of North of I'm sorry of South Korea who just for no apparent reason, because South Korea is a very crowded place. It doesn't have area. It doesn't have a lot of area for um, golf courses, but the women there are just amazing golfers. And it's a confluence of several economic factors, including the lack of labor market opportunities for women in, in South Korea, but also other cultural and economic factors that I think is an incredible story. And, you know, there are other examples that are based on different things. Norwegian cross-country skiers are quite amazing. Um, But there are a lot of good examples of this from around the world in different sports that I found super interesting. Okay, well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Um, Dr. Paul Oyer's latest book, An Economist Goes to the Game, had to throw away 580 million and other surprising insights from um, the economics of sports. It's available July 12th, 2022, wherever you get your books. Um, Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Ray. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, back soon with the latest.